this week on Forward. This idea of depolarization and not, not realizing that ultimately there isn't inherent sort of moral value to polarization, which I think is actually the way I think, unfortunately, a lot of Americans have come to think about it. My personal feeling is that we're being set up in opposition to each other in a way that pushes any genuine solution out of reach and probably leads us to national acrimony or worse. Yeah, I share your concerns, Andrew. And I think those, again, those personal interactions you've had are probably the only way to actually begin to change perceptions in a way that is useful and authentic and organic. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast author of The Politics of Vulnerability and producer of The Secret Life of Muslims, law professor herself, Asma Yudin. Welcome, Asma. Thank you, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so we were introduced by Ibu Patel, who's been on the podcast. What a great guy. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that you and Ibu would have met or have worked together because you're both doing such awesome work. Uh, how did you guys get connected? Wow, where does my relationship with Ibu um, trace back to? I don't remember the exact origins, but I do remember that before I ever met him, I read his book, uh, one of his first books. Which one? I mean, he has so wow. many. <laughs> I mean, just like the story about like how he came to, uh, when he was a Rhodes Scholar, and he came to found uh, what was then called Interfaith Youth Corps, um, and sort of like his thinking be- behind that. And that was just, I think that I was probably in college at the time doing uh, a third major in religious studies that just sort of came about because I took too many classes in religion, um, which I think was one of my early, one of my early, not, not the earliest, but certainly one of my early indicators that religion was something that I am deeply passionate about and interested in. Um, so even though I never thought I would end up in the space professionally, I was studying it and reading about other people's experience working in related fields, um, and was just fascinated by it all. You, you're you a Pakistani-American and uh, grew up Muslim here in the U.S. Uh, whereabouts did you grow up? So I grew up in Miami, Florida. Wow. Yeah, a place not normally associated with Pakistani Muslims. Uh, I suppose it's not the first thing that jumps to mind. <laughs> and then you went to law school at the University of Chicago. Is, is that when uh, you started heading in this direction? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it depends what the direction is as we're defining it. Uh, religion for me was, a, again, a source of fascination on multiple levels, the personal, the spiritual, the intellectual, uh, the communal. Uh, I think very, I mean, very early on, like I have memories of uh, being a middle schooler walking around with books on comparative religion and trying to generate interfaith dialogue among my you know, fellow 12 year olds. Um, and from there kind of going to high school and working in the space again, I mean, this is, this was immediately pre nine 11. Um, so I didn't really know what was going to come my way, but Islam had already kind of begun to be a contentious topic in the news. And I just thought it was uh, a space that I could contribute. I mean, again, imagining sort of like this high schooler in Miami, uh, you're not going to have that many people who are able to speak to this issue personally. Um, and so I took it upon myself, I think, as a lot of Muslims have growing up in this country, to become essentially spokespersons for our religion and our religious community. And then going to college, kind of doing that third major, essentially by mistake, and then um, exploring it further at the law school, uh, I think was where I realized that 
this goes beyond just sort of like a kind of more um, personal hobby to something that I that I'm genuinely interested in intellectually and could see being a key part of my career moving forward. Yeah, I mean, you've made it a huge part of your career. You uh, were the founding editor of uh, an e-zine around uh, Muslim life in America. And one reason why I instinctively admire you is that I went to law school and uh, there were some people who wanted to do good in law school, but very few did. (laughs) So the fact that you actually have done so much positive work uh, is really awesome. Uh, And your book... Uh, the Politics of Vulnerability, How to Heal Muslim-Christian Relations in a Post-Christian America, which uh, I, I enjoyed. I find it very insightful, in large part because my work now is uh, trying to reduce American polarization. And you make numerous observations in the book about how we are more polarized than at any time uh, since the Civil War, which I agree with. And you've been working in these spaces. You've actually walked into rooms and kind of been like this living emblem of trying to bridge uh, these divides yourself. Uh, And you have a number of harrowing stories in your book uh, about those rooms. I mean, I do. And I'd be curious to hear some of your stories um, as well. Uh, I think it's a topic that this idea of depolarization and not, not realizing that ultimately there isn't inherent sort of moral value to polarization, which I think is actually the way I think, unfortunately, a lot of Americans I've come to think about it, um, that this isn't, you know, polarization is good and right because we have to oppose those bad guys. We right? have that to defeat, uh, you know, the bad guys, whoever the bad guys are. Yeah. And defeat being the, the key word there. Like, it's just, it's not about any way of um, talking through things or kind of trying to find compromise solutions or solutions of any sort. Uh, it seems like the, the feedback I've gotten um, from people who are skeptical about my arguments is just, there is no good there to be discovered, right? So I don't know why you, meaning me, keep insisting, or both of us, I guess, that there is something uh, valuable in the other side, right? So the idea is not just that the other side is wrong, but that the other side is fundamentally immoral, evil, bigoted, so on and so forth. And if that's the way you're going to see your opponent, then it makes no sense to try to make peace. Um, So certainly it, it creates uncomfortable <laughs> encounters um, and situations in which someone like you or I um, are trying to offer another another narrative. Well, I, I've been all over the country, and I, I know that there's good in every community. I mean, I've been in uh, rural Iowa, uh, the Midwest, the South, New England, uh, and then obviously the, the coasts and some of the urban areas. Uh, and there are good people, certainly of any party, of any faith, of any community. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to imagine a town where you couldn't find someone awesome. <laughs> you know, like, like there's someone awesome in that town, probably, you know, almost certainly, even if, even if that awesome person might not agree with, let's say me on, you know, a, a bunch of things. Um, but there, there's something uh, different in, in terms of morality or goodness that than there is in terms of, Hey, you know, which, uh, team are you on or which policy do you subscribe to? Yeah, I think one of the benefits of the work that I do, um, even when I was litigating exclusively, uh, I, not exclusively in the sense that I was also kind of touring the nation, talking about the issues that were at the center of many of the cases that I worked on, um, because I've had the benefit also of the fact that a lot of these cases are things that people know about. They kind of made the headlines. People want to know what's up. 
And so it took me to places in the United States that I can assure you I would never have otherwise traveled to. And, you know, just sort of one gave me an idea of just how vast this country is and how completely different our lives can be uh, depending on where we live in the United States. Uh, but meeting people that I think are often, depending on where you're living, tend to be characterized in a particular way, often in totally. a very simplistic way. And then you meet them and you're just like, wait, that's not, that's not true. You're, you're fine or you're good. You're great. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think the, the sort of more high profile contentious version of that is when you're working on some of these cases that are uh, perceived as being very your team, my team. And then you realize that, again, just like I had talking to some of those clients or some of the people who who uh, are supporting those clients, that you're not exactly as the media kind of makes you out to be. You, you've taken on the content, uh, contentious position in a number of these cases that everyone remembers. Like you, I, I believe you stood on the side of religious freedom in uh, in the Supreme Court case, uh, the Hobby Lobby case. Yes. Um, so for a long while, I was working at a law firm that specializes in religious liberty. It was like the sole you know, topic area of litigation. And there have been a number of cases at the U.S. Supreme Court that the law firm has been involved in. Um, but in my experience, or starting this in the space of in late 2009, I don't think I fully kind of faced uh, the question of polarization and like just how angry religion or traditional religion can make some people until I worked on that case. So the Hobby Lobby case involves a fundamentalist Protestant family that owns, it's a closely held company, so it's just a family that owns this uh, the Hobby Lobby uh, craft chain. The question arose in the aftermath of the Affordable Care Act, the specific portion that required employers to pay for a series of contraceptive drugs. And they were okay with almost all of those drugs. It was just a couple that they had some concerns about, ones that they thought essentially were abortifacients the morning after a week after pill. And they said, well, we don't, it's actually against our religion to have to pay for these drugs. Our employees are welcome to use them, but by our paying for them, we essentially become complicit in something that our religion says is evil. Uh, and that, that's my version. I mean, that, that is the, the, what the facts are. And I'm explaining it that way. And that sounds not very interesting or polarizing, but as you can imagine, Andrew, like it just became something entirely different. Uh, became a question, for example, on the war on women and and conservative religious men trying to dictate women's sexuality, um, so on and so forth. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. 
no matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. And your book is fascinating. You actually two books because you you've written um, uh, on the subject multiple times. But uh, one thing you you pointed out that I did not know uh, was that seventy percent of American Muslims voted for George Bush the first time because back then, pre nine eleven, there was actually something of a common alignment between religious Muslims and people of faith generally. They just found that that uh, the uh, Republican Party at that time um, seemed to resonate a bit more naturally. And then in the wake of 9-11, uh, then things shifted very much the other side where now uh, Barack Obama, I mean, not shocking, I think that was 89% of, of Muslims voted for him, but um, but similar percentages, I think it was 75% for Hillary Clinton uh, uh, and something similar for John Kerry. So there was this massive realignment of Muslim voters. And one of the things you point out was that uh, that now Muslim has become kind of part of this team polarization we're talking about, where instead of it being a people of faith, it's become part of what you characterize as a mega identity, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. So that idea of mega identity uh, is something that's been uh, proposed by political scientists. Uh, one political scientist in particular, Liliana Mason, came up with the term and the idea is that now our political identities are not just a question of where we stand on a particular policy issue, but they've come to encompass so many different things. And I think a lot of us, especially those kind of studying polarization or in this space, uh, know and have heard of studies, for example, that most of the people who eat sushi or drink lattes or drive hybrids, um, which, again, I think the question of electric cars is becoming a little bit more complicated with Elon Musk um, and, and everything going on there. But... But, you know, they tend to be Democrats and those who go to other types of restaurants and shop at other types of grocery stores and live in different parts of the country or drive Range Rovers are Republicans. Um, and so it's, it's just like this extension of our political identities beyond questions that we think of as actually political. You know, I, I took a test, Asma, as to uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, and some of the questions were like, what is the family name on Duck Dynasty? And you think to yourself, like, that actually could tell you whether, uh, you know, I'm one party or another, but it turns out, statistically, it can. Right, because there's only, there's a particular subset of Americans who are actually watching that show, watching closely enough to know. Or on the other side, it would probably be something like Queer Queer Eye for a Straight Guy or something like that. Yeah, and so my theory, kind of thinking about this and sort of piecing together what I was observing in my space, uh, which is religion and religious liberty, is, oh, like Muslims have essentially become one of those traits. They've become traits of the liberal uh, mega identity, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people kind of respond to that, especially conservatives who are just sort of thinking, you know, less politically about issues. That that, that doesn't make sense because there's just like all these like traditional religious beliefs that are also held by a lot of Muslims. And so it's just like, well, shouldn't there be an alignment with uh, conservative Christians and conservative believers of other faiths? 
I don't think it's that simple. I think there's a lot of diversity of beliefs among American sure. Muslims. I think it's changing according to age groups and other demographics. But I think that there's just like, well, that's the way it is, but it doesn't make sense. Sorry, a lot of people, you know, have that remark. And I'm like, well, when you have one side being so explicitly anti-Muslim to the point where they're supporting a man who wants to ban Muslims or spy on mosques and create a registry so and all that, um, it becomes really hard for the average Muslim to be like, I'm going to support that team because clearly that team hates me. Um, so I think that's that's the starting point. And then, of course, there's there's more complexity there. So your, your book talks uh, about the fact that white evangelical Christians feel themselves to be something of an aggrieved group. Uh, they're diminishing in number. They feel themselves to be diminishing in terms of cultural Im- importance. And then that sense of aggrievement can lead them to feel uh, victimized in a particular way and marginalized, and then they lash, lash out um, or can be incited or inflamed uh, by ideas that blame their sense of uh, diminution on another group. Uh, and then you make similar cases about other groups, including Muslim Americans, where it's like, look, there are very real elements of marginalization. And so the problem is that you have this tribalism, which, by the way, I, I thought was very uh, vulnerable of you to characterize the politics of vulnerability, because most people on a particular team are not very apt to characterize the other side's feelings of marginalization as legitimate. Right. And that was the key sort of step I was offering in this book. Kind of like, can we get to the point where even if, because a lot of people kind of hear evangelicals or other white conservative Christians kind of make these claims about being victims in this country. And they, the response typically is you just roll your eyes, right? Like it's just, give me a break. You have so much power. Um, you're, you're, you were for a long, I mean, for most of American history and, to some extent, even today, a majority in this country, how could you ever claim victimization or minority status, right? So these groups also claim minority status based on the un, you know, unpopularity of their traditional beliefs. And I think, you know, my response to that is just like, if you keep taking that approach, all you do is further exacerbate that sense of victimization, which continues to manifest in this form of just not even, I mean, the, the simplest, like the least worrisome version of it is that you just don't even acknowledge the other groups have real grievances. And I saw that time and again, kind of like a lot of commentary, a lot of people talking to that there's nothing really real that's bad that's happening to American Muslims. Um, You know, that's all just sort of Islamophobia spelled, you know, F-A-U-X. And so it's like, well, if we can just get them to start to acknowledge that, that's like the first step. And the next step is to actually understand that there might be commonalities there. There might be some value in working with, you know, with and among these religious groups because sometimes the feeling of vulnerability and grievance is is very much shared. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high-quality mattress... It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. 
Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest forces in American life right now where uh, there are different groups. Tribalism is on the rise uh, and different people really feel like they're on the outside looking in. And then other people are like, what are you talking about? How the heck could you feel like you're on the outside looking in. Um, I, I'll say I worked with a colleague who was Muslim um, after 9-11, and he uh, came back a day late from a trip. Um, and then sometime that week, he shared with me and uh, and another friend that he'd been detained at the airport for like a day. I mean, something insane. Uh, and And this guy is as American as the day is long. Uh, you know, he, he, but he's, he's Muslim American. And he had a Muslim name and hearing about it, he said at one point, he was like, I, I thought I was not going to see my family ever again. Like uh, at a certain point, I mean, they were just holding him and just like uh, uh, interrogating him in a way that seemed to presume that he was guilty of terrible things. And so I heard this and I was like, I can't believe that happens to an American in an American airport. Uh, and that, and that's real. Um, uh, on the other side of the coin, I've been to rural communities where people are suffering and people are not thriving at all. And then someone in a diner would say to me, it's like, hey, why is it that the media seems to just call me racist all the time? Um, and it was in a community where, frankly, there was no non-white person that the person could have even have been racist toward. Like there, there there's, a, you know, like, like it was like a, <laughs> like a so to the extent that that person has problems, uh, you know, like that, like they struck me as relatively objective. Um, and the the problems were of like a rural town getting depleted. Um, so there, there are different types of real issues that different groups face. And I like my personal feeling is that we're being set up in opposition to each other in a way that, uh, that pushes any genuine solution out of reach and probably leads us to, uh, national acrimony or worse. Yeah, I share your concerns, Andrew. And I think those, again, those personal interactions you've had are probably the only way to actually begin to change perceptions in a way that is, um, useful and authentic and organic how you go about kind of doing that for every or most Americans, I think, you know, an important question. I don't know if you have some ideas around that. I do. I'm working on it just like you're working on it. And I'm working in a particular way. So, um, so I, I'm something of a numbers guy. And my theory of the case is that we are getting pitted against each other um, by three layers of incentives. So layer number one is that party primaries disproportionately empower folks who are uh, at the ideological extremes, at the expense of everyone else. So if you have national approval rating of U.S. Congress at 22%, which is where it is, <laughs> then a re-election rate of incumbents at 94%, you think, like, wait a minute, like, how the heck can four out of five of us be unhappy, but everyone keeps their seat? 
And the reason they keep their seat is that 90% of the districts are drawn to be either blue or red. It's uncompetitive in the general. And so the only way you can lose your seat is if you get primaried. So your entire incentive structure is let me avoid getting primaried. Who votes in the primaries? The 10 to 12% most extreme. So you can take someone in this version of the Republican Party and they're rational in person and they sound much less rational uh, you know, when the, the camera's on them. Um, so number one is try and get rid of the party primaries, which, by the way, is doable. The, the second thing is that media organizations now are blue team, red team, and everyone kind of knows what team they're on. And their business model now is based upon giving people what they want and not challenging them and often uh, inflaming them. Um, so you want to do something about that. And one of the suggestions I have is that we should try to resuscitate local journalism, which tended to be less partisan, national uh, networks tend to be much more ideological. And then the third is social media, which is going to kill us all and <laughs> rewards uh, folks who are crazy at every level. So so uh, I'm trying to attack each of those. And uh, that that's the way my brain works. <laughs> that's, that's what four parties working on. You go for the biggest challenges I can see. Um, yeah, I was going to say, like, even when you were talking about sort of news media, it's, it's, might be may, might be possible uh, to begin to kind of change the the team mentality, but social media, how do you tackle that one? <laughs> like, how do you even begin to kind of t- pull people out of their echo chambers? Yeah, you need to have an algorithm that rewards thoughtfulness and uh, starts to minimize uh, folks who are inflammatory or insulting or aggressive. I mean, the, the fact is, folks just want clicks <laughs> and engagement. So if being a jackass gets you fewer clicks, then, you know, you'll turn it around. Yeah. I mean, one of my challenges working in the space is just sometimes a sense of fatigue that kind of sets in. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was at, and again, I'm dealing with a very small, but still very large piece of uh, the pie. And so I go on these talks where, you know, there's a diversity in types of audiences that I address, but I was recently in Cincinnati in Northern Kentucky, you know, addressing a group of conservative Catholics. It was almost uniformly white in the crowd. Um, you know, it was like a space where we were in a chapel, we were talking about um, religious groups working together. And then I get a question about, which is a type of question that I essentially address in my first book, that concern, which is like, well, how can we give religious freedom and recognize that there's protection for the religious rights of Muslims because they're just going to use it to essentially kind of like take over the country. Uh, what if they grow in number? What if they get too much freedom and then they essentially end up you know, suppressing all of our rights? Um, and it was just like, okay, here we go again. <laughs> let's, let's have this conversation. Let's begin to kind of parse like all the generalizations and um, you know, misinformation that kind of is underlying this question. But I, I remember just returning to my hotel room and just feeling exhausted and just feel like, you know, sometimes I wonder why, why do I do this? It feels insurmountable. Uh, well, did, did you feel like you helped that day? Cause I'm sure you did. I think I helped because I offered facts and thing you know, that helped to kind of uh, counter, I think some of the assumptions that were being made, uh, one being that there's almost 2 billion Muslims in the world and somehow that they're all the same. Uh, they all come from countries that are authoritarian. Like there's just no distinctions that are drawn, um, or any sort of complexity, understanding of the complexity of politics and how it intersects with religion. And it's not one of the same. And you can have authoritarian governments that, that don't represent the popular will, so on and so forth. And I don't, so I don't know if the person who asked the question, again, these were anonymous kind of coming up on no cards, like, 
was absorbing any of that. Because my experience in other scenarios is that while it's beneficial to put that out there and there are people in the audience who were more open-minded to begin with and might have had some sort of underlying uneasiness, my answer helps them reach clarity. But I think there's just a fairly large subset of Americans who just think they know what's right and they already know before I start speaking or responding to their question that whatever I say is just a falsehood. Right. And and a part of this has to do with this perception of Muslims, unfortunately, as essentially, and I'm not saying this is a majority perception, but I've heard it more than once, that, for example, white evangelicals have this perception of Muslims as essentially being deceptive. So no matter what you say, no matter how great it sounds, no matter how much you might agree with the words, like you can't really trust it because this person just has some other agenda. Well, Usma, uh, so I've been to Cincinnati, and one of the any number of times, um, and my organization, Venture for America, um, uh, operates there. I believe to this day, I uh, started it in 2011, um, and so I, I think that just your being there actually uh, carried a lot of weight because it's a room that you know, like, is fairly uh, homogeneous to so the group that uh, isn't you, and you're not you don't live in Cincinnati. And so the fact that you would actually come to Cincinnati and, and, and make what is clearly a very positive case of fellowship, uh, I, I think probably went a longer way than you realize. I had that experience uh, there and in a lot of places around the country where if someone's initially dubious, then it, things start to click because of this universal principle of reciprocity which is you went to their community. <laughs> you're, you know, you're not like sitting in yours and you're not like in your living room. You know, you actually went there. I mean, like, I, I think that people respond to that. I agree. And I think that that is the, a real a sort of realization that I had that, again, you're not going to be able to reach everyone, um, but there are going to be people that you can reach. And I think in the book, when I sort of wrote The Politics of Vulnerability, that's those are the people I'm trying to trying to reach, right? So the initial question I had to answer in the book is like, who do you think among the sort of set of white conservative Christians who have these very sort of um, oppositional beliefs sometimes against Islam and Muslims, like who do you think is reachable? Who do you think is actually worth reaching, right? So I spend some time kind of parsing the difference between Christian nationalists, for example, and white conservative evangelicals, who all the polling sure. data points to that group as the group that has the highest levels of animosity against American Muslims. So I, I actually create, a, I, I rely on some scholarship that creates a scale of Christian nationalism and sort of like all the way from the rejectors to the ambassadors, that's what these political scientists call it, um, to people in the middle who just sort of are like, okay, I'll kind of go along with that because I don't know what else to go along with, but I feel uncomfortable about it. Um, or like, you know, these issues, I feel this way, but other issues, I feel other ways. And, you know, just sort of begin to add grayness to that dynamic. You, you, you said this in your book too. It's like that you're a natural listener. You're always trying to draw out the complexity and nuance. Um, have, I get the sense, have you taken heat from both sides? Because I feel like, uh, each of them just wants you to kind of characterize the other team as bad. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if that, that's accurate. Yeah, 100%. You know, I've heard even from people in my own religious community that it just doesn't seem comfortable um, or seems kind of 
simplistic in a way to kind of assume there is goodness in this other set of people. Which I, <laughs> it's simplistic to assume there is goodness in a group of, <laughs> by the way, you know, millions of humans, but continue. Yeah, no, but the idea is that, you know, it's just, it's, it's a type of thinking that they're, and we heard it when Trump was elected, right? Like they're uniformly racist. Um, and they, you know, they only want what's bad. That's why I'd spend so much time making that distinction between Christian nationalists and these others, because sure. Yes, you can actually make those claims about people who are Christian nationalists. And those are people that I don't think I can actually build bridges with or even have a conversation, a productive conversation with. But I think it's so important to just say, okay, you can't take this entire group of people and conflate it with the worst of them. And, you know, I'm like, hey, does that sound familiar? That I mean, people do that to Muslims all the time, right? Like we're just conflated yeah, with the, the worst of people who claim to be Muslims. And I'm like, if you don't like it when they do it to you, you can't do it to them. Well, the, the, the real enemy here, Usma, is dehumanization. And unfortunately, we're in a time of dehumanization. I think that's from Ibu, actually. <laughs> that, that, just taking Ibu's uh, words of wisdom. Um, but when, when you were talking about we saw it with Trump voters, I was just reflected on a couple of friends of mine who are Trump voters uh, who are Christian, excellent people, also happen to be Asian American in, in this case. Um, and they just thought that Trump uh, was a better reflection of their values in, in part because of their faith. Uh, now, I wouldn't characterize them as immoral, racist, like, they, you know, like they're, they're good people, you know, like I, I, I know them quite well. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of my own network. I have family members who resemble the same thing. I've got, you know, like uh, probably dozens or hundreds there were a lot of people who supported Trump who supported me during the presidential. Um, and last I checked, you know, like I'm not white. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so it, it's so characterizing a group of tens of millions of Americans in a particular way. Um, I've always resisted it. I, I sense that you resisted it, too, just because if you sit down with a group of 100 people, you'll probably see vast differences between them. And then if you extrapolate that to you know, a few million, <laughs> it gets kind of ridiculous to say like, oh, they're all this way. Right. I mean, so it's the personal experiences, it's the experiences with these larger crowds. But I think it was also, and I, and I kind of talk about this in the book, like how a lot of this is also something I draw from my religious worldview. There's just a certain conception of like humans um, as, as a starting point as good, as, as good, as inherently good. Yep. Um, and that diversity was created by God for a reason, right? There was a re- we were supposed to get to know each other. We're supposed to be different. Like that's part of the plan. But the the reason for that is to also to come together in our diversity and our differences. Um, but I think it was just like I, I sort of point to that a lot, which is why I rely uh, so much on social science to kind of like make this argument. I'm like, look, people who study humans and like humans meaning all humans, regardless of skin color, like they have noticed certain things about the way that humans react um, to identity of group identity in group identity doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing it's just a very human thing and you can use it to good or bad ends but it's just what makes us who we are so let's think through that you know let's just not assume that just because a group feels threatened um that that's necessarily a bad a bad thing right like so sort of the rise of populism there's like scholarship from across um you know various parts of the united of, of europe that it was experiencing the rise of populism and this idea that it's not that these people are racist. I mean, certainly racism is sort of one factor, but it's not the most important factor. It's more just about a sense of have feeling that there's kind of this attack on their idea of community or identity or values. 
And we can spin that in a very problematic way, but we can also spin that in a very sort of core human way. Yeah, you can also throw in the fact that American children are, at this point, as likely to do worse than their parents, uh, um, as better. And that's new in American life, you know, that the general standard of living is trending downwards um, in the way that it is. I appreciated your book's direction in large part because I also know uh, some white evangelical Christians who are very active with the forward party and they're deeply moral. They're deeply distressed about what's going on in the country. I haven't sat down with them and tried to figure out what we disagree on. I'm sure there is stuff we disagree on, <laughs> but, but, uh, but they're like me uh, working really hard to try and keep the country together um, and emphasize our shared humanness. Yeah. And I think there's a realization among probably the people you're working with and, and others that I've worked with, that this is just really bad for everyone. Yeah, it's bad um, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, the thing that you value the most is being threatened by the state of polarization. Right? And again, the part of it that I look at, again, is religion and religious liberty, which is something that's very important to lots of people. And so I kind of started thinking about that. I was like, I'm working on this issue. I realized that it's so important to both sets of groups I'm trying to bring together. So how about I kind of just sort of explore how this particular issue can be the thing that kind of makes it clear to both sides that it's worth working together because if you don't ultimately both sides all sides will lose robust you know, religious freedom protections um so that's what i identified yeah yeah you're saying look religious freedom is religious freedom and religious freedom doesn't apply just to one group uh, you know it applies to uh, any people of faith and by the way it's a core tenet of uh, uh of our country so you commented on sometimes finding it um, exhausting, uh, being this human <laughs> bridge builder, which I, uh, I, I uh, appreciate and understand. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the forward party is I want to give you and others energy, juice, like-minded people, a tribe. Like, like just know that there are millions of Americans who think the exact same way you do, uh, or let's say I do. <laughs> and when I say think the way, the same way you and I do, is just that there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of humanity. It's hard to make me hate any large group because I just know that group is, con is comprised of millions of people with very different stories. Uh, and, uh, you know, tribalism is baked into human life, but it, it shouldn't be our defining uh, ingredients, um, particularly in a two-sided system. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely appreciate that. I mean, there's something about just kind of making it a trend, making it cool. Um, you know, I think you might have experienced this, but I certainly get the sense, uh, if not told explicitly, that I'm some sort of sellout um, to, you know, to one community for even wanting to engage in this work. Um, and so I think that if this was just sort of a growing realization that this isn't as bad as people think, that this might actually be something worth doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Ibu said, it's like, hey, look, where, where is the fact that being Muslim is a privilege? You know, like that, 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 that it's not like that it's all um, oppressor victim, <laughs> you know, that, that, that there are, uh, it, because, you know, I, I sense that when someone considers you a sellout, like it, it, it you know, it, it, it doubles down on this kind of us versus them and you can't uh, try to build bridges, um, which I, I think is 
a path to ruin in very, very bad places. Uh, so you know, they're, they're more like us than you probably experience on a day-to-day basis or someone's put it that way. Yeah. And I think also, again, understanding the diversity. So like, I think people in the Muslim community, there are some people in the Muslim community who absolutely face, who are oppressed. Right. Um, but I think there is also the realization that the Muslim community is one of the wealthiest, right. In this country. So what is that experience? How is that different? Um, and how can we begin to kind of also see the intersection of, of class and race and um, education and, and so on and so forth and understanding exactly what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to uh, solve problems and uh, you know, give people a, a better life of really of any background. So congratulations uh, on this book. Uh, I, I found it to be very nuanced and sophisticated, the politics of vulnerability, uh, how to heal Muslim Christian relations in a post-Christian America. So how can people keep up with you uh, support what you're doing well, I'm currently a visiting law professor at Catholic University, uh, so you can definitely follow me in terms of my, my work there. I also continue to tour the nation, um, doing different speaking engagements and working on projects right now for a number of different foundations. Uh, so if you're interested, you can reach out. Uh, my website is asmauddin.com, and uh, I'm easily reachable through that website. Fantastic. Usman, we'll probably hit you up. We'll invite you to some some event uh, before you know it. 